This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. I want to welcome you to this July 26th edition of Real Talk. It's uh, Jesperson here with Hicks. Roles reversed a little bit, buddy. You're rocking the big shade, not shades, but the big prominent dark glasses frames. I love this. This is a, a sort of a new style for Relay's technical producer. You're yeah. rocking it. I like it. My grandmother was like, are, are, are you losing your vision? No, they're just blue blockers because we were talking about this. I, I look at screens yeah. all day and then I go DJ events. I'm looking at a screen. Then I go home and I check emails. It's just too many screens. So I I'm, try, it's I'm a trying good to look for you, though. Yeah. My eyes are they're worn out. They're not not bad vision, so I'm just trying to take care of my health. Here. So not prescription, but the lenses are treated yeah, to they, sort of like decrease the the impact of the of the screens on you. All that light, yeah. So blue light from screens can uh, give you eye fatigue. Is what right. I'm trying to avoid, which is a real thing. Yeah. And a lot of people probably don't realize it until they mm-hmm. have it. And uh, yeah, I like it. Well, it's a good look on you. And I've noticed that our, our conversations behind the scenes have become like 15% smarter <laughs> since you started wearing the glasses. <laughs> <laughs> so I really, I, I really, you're raising the bar for all of us. Uh, this is going to be a, a great episode of the show coming up in just a few minutes. We're going to check in with Matt Lammers. Uh, Matt is uh, sort of one of the definitive uh, voices, I guess you might say, and certainly a respected journalist in the cannabis space, the global cannabis space he keeps an eye on markets uh, outside of the united states i'll ask him why not the u.s when we talk to him but there's been some pretty high profile developments uh, some stories across the country including one in particular uh, a pretty notable brand uh, right now uh, moving toward insolvency moving toward bankruptcy leaving what looks like maybe the government of canada on the hook uh, vis-a-vis taxpayers for about nine million dollars but it's the names of the people involved in that company alifia that's uh, grabbing everybody's attention it includes the former chief of police for the city of Toronto, who is also a conservative cabinet minister, member of parliament, a whole bunch of former cops and politicians involved in that company in particular. Now, let me get ahead of some of the objections. You're going to say, what? What? Politicians can invest in companies? What? What? what, what, what police officers, law enforcement can invest their money in companies? There was a really interesting trend back in you know, 2015, 16 into 17 when cannabis was becoming an inching toward legal in Canada, where a whole bunch of people that were involved in the process that that may have had insights behind the scenes and and Relay's legal uh, representatives will tell me that I should say things like, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, or my opinion is, but a lot of people's eyebrows were raised. It just seemed like a lot of folks that might have insights into where the markets were going were investing and then pulling their money out and walking away with handsome paydays. And it, it, it just looked, well, it kind of stunk, quite frankly. And so now you look at where the business is at across the country. The government is doing pretty well, you know, with regards to tax revenue. But, but a lot of people, I don't know if you've been noticing in your neighborhood, the ma and pa shops, some of you may say that this is a fabulous development. You never wanted to see it there in the first place. But whether it's the retailers or, or the LPs, the licensed producers on the growing side, there's a trend toward insolvency. Companies are suffering. What's going on? Wasn't legalized cannabis supposed to be a guaranteed 
boon. They were calling it the green rush. You remember that? We're going to talk to Matt about that. Plus, today we'll welcome back Markham Hislop of Energy Media, part two of his series, Unethical Oil. You remember Markham joined me in studio, I guess about six weeks ago. My time estimates are usually sort of loosey-goosey, but Markham was here earlier this spring talking about part one of his investigative series. He's continued to do his digging as an independent energy journalist, and, and he'll join us in the second half of this show. Plus, of course, we're going to take you out to the mountains with an awesome reason to visit Jasper National Park. That's coming up in my Jasper memories. But this episode of Real Talk is presented by our friends at Rello. I know this is the time of year, you know, sort of the middle of the summer where the kids have been at home for a while. You know, maybe you're some of you starting to think about September already. Know what I mean? You'd never say it out loud. But things are winding down at work as well. Every email that you send out, you're getting the out of office replies. And, you know, a lot of people have vacation on the brain, but not you. You're thinking bigger than that. You know that summer is the absolute best time to take that real estate course that you've been thinking about and start a career that you actually love. Leave cubicle life behind for good with Rello. Johnny, I'm imagining somebody watching this right now from their cubicle. And, and as we speak, as they're watching Real Talk stream live, they're visiting Rello.ca. Uh, interested to learn more about this, uh, Rello's online real estate courses are fully accredited to help you get your real estate license in Alberta. And they've just added a commercial real estate course to their offerings with more courses coming soon. So basically, sky's the limit when it comes to the options you have at Rello. Get licensed the easy way with Rello's convenient, self-paced courses. You can visit Rello.ca, that's R-E-L-O.ca, to get started. Before we get into... Uh, you know, talking cannabis, talking oil and gas. There have been some some pretty big news developments uh, just over the past couple of hours, and obviously we're doing this live at at eight thirty Mountain Time at ten thirty Eastern. Uh, actor, uh, I mean, at one point, a list actor Kevin Spacey cleared mm-hmm. of all charges of sexual assault by a, a London jury this morning. Uh, this is just a few hours ago, and, and this is obviously uh, huge news. This was um, a jury trial uh, that acquitted Kevin Spacey on nine sexual assault charges. Uh, it was multiple counts of sexual assault uh, and one count of causing a person to engage in penetrative sexual activity without consent. This was obviously a huge story. Uh, you remember when this first broke, Johnny? Kevin Spacey at the time was was easily uh, one of, I think, the most revered actors in Hollywood. His iconic, CV yeah. speaks for itself. Iconic. Mm-hmm. His show at that time, House of Cards, was one of the biggest shows on TV. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously that all came to a screeching halt as three men had accused the Oscar winner uh, of aggressively grabbing their crotches. There was a fourth accuser who was an aspiring actor that had been seeking membership that, that said that he had awoken. By the way, these are obviously not details for kids if you're listening to this you know on the family road trip or whatever you might want to skip ahead a few seconds here but uh but this uh man had testified that he had awoken to mr spacey performing oral sex on him after he had gone to his apartment for a beer and and fallen asleep or passed out they had all basically said that the content was unwanted but spacey and his legal team had, had said spacey testified on this said that uh you know these had all been willing participants that these had been consensual acts uh, he said, basically, his lawyer did, defense lawyer Patrick Gibbs, that these men were liars, that the incidents had been, quote, reimagined with a sinister spin. 
Uh, on the flip side, the prosecutor, Christine Agnew, had told jurors that the actor, that Kevin Spacey, was a sexual bully uh, who had taken what he wanted. Well, these accusations had dated over a period of about 12 years and had included a, a period of time um, when the Oscar winner, he had won Academy Awards twice for The Usual Suspects in American Beauty, had returned to the theater and he was uh, working as artistic director for the Old Vic Theater in London. But this was right around when the Me Too movement was was really oh, yeah. full steam ahead, you know, right around 2017. Um, and, and, and a lot of these men had basically testified that they had been sitting on these stories that, that they hadn't come forward before because it had just been too difficult, you know, testifying to police, basically saying that in, in some of these instances, in some of these cases, they were instances that they had never told anybody before, not their friends, not their families. And, and anybody that's worked with survivors, anybody that's familiar uh, in this space, whether it's counseling or, or, or law enforcement or, or, or whatever you, you know, whatever uh, the context is, you know that that's not unusual. It's not unusual for survivors to, to keep these uh, incidents, these stories, these experiences, and in, in some circumstances, let's call them what they are, these assaults to themselves, right? As the actor, as Spacey, testified from the witness box, he became choked up and, and reportedly uh, teary-eyed. He said that this is these accusations, the barrage of criticism that followed here had created emotional and financial turmoil, said Spacey, quote, my world exploded. Uh, there was a rush to judgment. And before the first question was asked or answered, I'd lost my job. I lost my reputation. I lost everything in a matter of days. There was a development in New York last year, which I know had intrigued some people when a jury in New York uh, cleared Spacey in a $40 million lawsuit that had been put forth by Star Trek Discovery actor Anthony Rapp on allegations that went back almost 30 years. Uh, and Spacey had told those close to him, his legal team, uh, telling journalists that he believed that this London case uh, these this trial in London was the one that was going to offer him a chance for redemption. He did an, actually uh, an interview with a German magazine uh, called Zeit last month. And he said, you know, there are people right now who are ready to hire me the moment that I am cleared of these charges in London. Well, that's exactly what's happened this morning in London. Uh, cleared of nine charges is Kevin Spacey uh, found not guilty on all charges. I'm curious to see if that actually does happen. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to see if, if and, and, and right now, obviously, the context, like we talked about with Stephanie Hughes, uh, the Bloomberg reporter yesterday, Hollywood, and Hollywood's not hiring anybody right now. Obviously, strikes, concurrent strikes happening, uh, production shut down on, on virtually everything uh, coming out of California. But I'll be curious to see. Uh, you know, Mel Gibson had a pretty high-profile disaster uh, you know, blaming Jews for World War II and what have you during a, 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 an impaired driving stop. He didn't work for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he came back. Never really, never really was he the Mel Gibson again. No. But there, there was, in a sense, a welcoming back from Hollywood. There have been other actors who have never worked again. And, and then there have been some actors who have never paid the price at all, like mm -hmm. Roman Polanski, the, the famous, the famed director course, yeah. and major Hollywood player. Um, you look at Harvey Weinstein, obviously a total disaster, Bill Cosby. Um, you wonder if Kevin Spacey's name will remain in the sentences with those names or if we will see him. Obviously a formidable force on screen, an incredible actor. There, there's no doubt about that. But will the court of public opinion acquit Kevin Spacey and will a studio 
be willing to put tens or hundreds of millions of dollars at risk putting a movie out there with his name in lights again. I'd be curious to see. What do you I don't, think? I don't you think see we'll that see? happening <laughs> right away. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, for sure. You know, acquittal on nine charges. Mm-hmm. People say not guilty. Um, but will people believe it? I'm curious to know. This is just a developing story. This verdict has come down again just a few hours ago. You can let us know what you think about this to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Matt Lammers coming up in just a second. I wanted to remind you that coming up on August 10th, okay, so we're, we're talking about two weeks from now, it's Miracle Treat Day. Coming up at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, this is a one day event in support of the Stollery Children's Hospital Foundation. And as we celebrated last year, the teams, the the families that own these DQ locations and their amazing employees have raised hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars for the Stollery Children's Hospital Foundation. Wanted to let you know that you can place orders in advance for Miracle Treat Day. So if you're on your way to, I don't know, a family gathering or, or maybe you're headed into the office for work, whatever it is on August 10th, wherever it is that you're headed, you can actually place orders in advance at the DQs in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. And all proceeds from these blizzard sales are going to go support children's health. That is the Stollery Children's Hospital Foundation. On that day, when you visit those DQ locations as well, they're going to ask you if you'd like to round up your total. So, if you know, your total's $5.44. If you want to round it up to 6 bucks, heck, if you want to round it up to 10 bucks, you can do that all in support of the Stollery. That's at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Johnny, I know you're getting excited for this weekend at Friesen Brothers. Oh, yeah. You're going to be headed to the South Edmonton location. It's only happening at the Rabbit Hill location in South Edmonton, the 29th and 30th of July. It's going to be incredible. Vegan brunch. Yeah. Well, I guess not brunch. It's at 4 p.m., but vegan uh, buffet, all you can eat, 4 p.m. We're going to be there in line with Bells on. I can't wait. They've got uh, vegan lasagna. They've got... Uh, what, I'm curious v- about the vegan, vegan shepherd's, shepherd's pot. pot. Yeah, they've got a lot of items that we normally didn't see at Freezing Bros. And then, of course, they've got the salad bar and all that. But uh, I'll be there. and I'll, I think I'm going to live stream the whole event because <laughs> I don't think we're going to eat Saturday night or Sunday. We're going to really prep up and, and get our it. money's worth. It's 25 bucks. All you can eat at the Rabbit Hill location. That's the South Edmonton location at Freezing Brothers. Uh, they've also got those vegan cowboy baked beans, which are going to be unbelievable. Other entrees, plus, like Johnny mentioned, that full salad bar. You can check out Friesen.com slash vegan. That's July 29th and 30th from 4 to 8 p.m. at Friesen Brothers in South Edmonton. And today, we're letting you know, if you're listening to this live, you got to take action right now. The K-Days 50-50, the early bird prize draw happens today. That's Wednesday the 26th. That's today at noon Mountain Time. We're also going to tweet this out, put it on our socials, because we want to make sure you have a chance to get your 50-50 tickets in support of the YWCA Edmonton. Now, of course, you can still get your 50-50 tickets all the way through till July 30th, but you want to get that early bird prize because you can qualify to win a trip for two anywhere WestJet flies. And that used to be like way back in the day, like you can go to Kelowna, Vancouver, Saskatoon. Mm-hmm. Remember, WestJet's now flying to Europe. They're flying to tropical destinations. WestJet has grown in a huge way over the years. And that means that this prize is one you will not want to miss. It's the K-Days 50-50 in support of YWCA Edmonton. You can go to K-Days. 
dashdays.com slash 50 dash 50. We'll put that link in the show notes, Johnny. We'll put, I'll punch that into the live chat as well. So anybody listening live now can get their tickets before noon today in support of the YWCA Edmonton. How much do you know about the state of the cannabis industry in Canada? You've probably noticed that maybe some of your friends are are using cannabis more openly than they did before, that maybe some of the the stigmas disappearing. Maybe you and your friends are, are starting to crush a couple gummies before you go to a concert or before you go to a party when before it might have been a glass of wine. The culture has been influenced in Canada at least a little bit. Since cannabis was legalized six years ago, hard to believe it's been that long already. But on the business side, it's not necessarily healthy. In fact, a lot of Canadian cannabis businesses have gone, pardon me, up in smoke. That's why we're intrigued by this conversation with Matt Lammers. This guy is one of the definitive voices on the cannabis industry in Canada. He's the international editor of MJ Biz Daily, where he manages the reporting of all cannabis industry markets outside the U.S., including Canada, Europe, Latin America, and Asia. Kind enough to join us today, Matt. We appreciate it, and thanks for making time for us. Welcome to Real Talk. Thanks for having me, Ryan. This is going to be fun. Yeah, where, where do we find you? Where are you checking in from today? I'm in St. Catharines, oh, near St. Toronto. St. Catharines, Ontario. How, how, would you, how would you say the, the, the cannabis industry is doing? And I obviously recognize that's a huge question because we could talk LPs, like growers. We could talk retailers. We could talk on the legislative side, and we will. Uh, what's the state of affairs, so to speak, in Ontario right now? Uh, it's really bad. So a lot of people could only have um, an insight into the retail industry because they're driving down the street and they can see 15 cannabis stores, so they automatically think there's too many. But that's actually not one of the biggest problems in the industry, although there is an issue with an over-concentration of stores in a very small number of areas. Um, that's not, I wouldn't even say that's the top five, top ten issues. Um, overall, the businesses have lost about $25 billion so far. Um, privately owned businesses, of course, have lost about $25 billion so far. Uh, mostly concentrated by the large companies like Canopy Growth, Aurora Cannabis, uh, and so on and so on. Um, but yes, I mean, a couple things off the top. Canadians consume, Canadians consume roughly the same amount of cannabis annually as they do beer. It's about $8 billion a year, but only about half of the legal market, maybe around 60% of the legal market or, or of, of the overall market is in the legal market right now. Um, that's my estimate. The government says it's about 75%, but uh, they're wrong because they don't have an insight into Indigenous communities. And illegal, store, illegal stores are prolific there these days. Um, the cannabis industry still isn't being taken seriously by serious people. They pretended to take it seriously in 2017 to 2019, but that was only when they thought they could make a lot of money. And then once they realized they couldn't, they left. Um, so including government, uh, government people still aren't taking this seriously. For example, the federal, federal government was supposed to launch a industry task force where federal officials would meet regularly with, uh, with industry officials. That was supposed to start well over a year ago, and they still haven't met once. Uh, thousands of people are losing their jobs. People are losing their RRSD investments. Uh, it's a big disaster. 
Um, and the federal government is totally ignoring it right now. No one really knows why. Um, I'm trying to find out. Um, there's a lot of doom and gloom in the industry, but I have to say, if you were to ask me, is legalization a success or a failure? I would say it's a success, even though we're going to probably spend most of this conversation talking about the issues and the bad things and the externalities. I would say it's a success because there's about 200,000 people in Canada today who don't have criminal records who otherwise would have had criminal records. So about 50,000 people a year were being charged with cannabis, simple cannabis possession, which isn't a serious thing, right? But it's a serious thing when you get charged with it and, and you get convicted with it, it sticks with you for life. Um, so from that perspective, 200,000 people uh, are relatively free today and they otherwise wouldn't have been if cannabis wasn't legalized. So that's the primary reason I would say that this is a success and all of these um, economic issues will be worked out. Uh, it's just a matter of time. Will it take, will it take years? Will it take decades? No one really knows. Yeah, man, you've you've given me 150 new questions to ask with your introductory comments. I appreciate that. I can't wait to talk to you about the indigenous angle on this and what you're describing as illegal stores. I think I know what you mean, but we'll get into that in just a second. Um, you'd probably be safe to suggest, and a buddy pitched me this idea on a golf course the other day. Both he and I have invested, to be honest, and we call the show Real Talk, I'll be real, a significant amount of of our available investment funds, put it that way, into cannabis. And both of us are feeling the hurt right now, but we've not completely lost our optimism. Uh, And he said to me, I have to believe that back just after the turn of last century, when prohibition ended, talking about booze, that some of the big names in the alcohol business now weren't exactly 100% gangbusters, pedal to the metal, experiencing nothing but their books in the black right out of the gates. There were probably stumbles. There were probably you know, lamentations and complaints that law enforcement wasn't taking the remaining bootleggers seriously anymore. There were probably marketing issues. There were probably some cultural issues that had to change. Is it a fair, is it a reasonable, is it a smart comparison? Absolutely. I think you have to look back at that history to study the current history, to study the present history. But the biggest difference is that when Canada legalized cannabis, um, and this happens in any country that legalizes either recreational or medical cannabis, um, they don't take their hands off the steering wheel. They don't legalize it and forget about it. It's one of the most heavily regulated substances on the planet still, and one of the most heavily regulated substances in Canada. It's heavily overregulated, and that's the whole point. They want it to be overregulated for, I guess, a few different reasons. One of them is that it's more politically palatable if it's overregulated. Um, and the other reason is they want to control, uh, they want to have some control over where the profits go to them, obviously. Um, and the other reason is for health reasons. Um, there are still a lot of skeptics um, that don't that think cannabis shouldn't have been legalized, or they think, okay, it's legalized. Now we want to see evidence that it's not doing harm to society or more harm than prohibition was. And I think that evidence already exists. And we're going to see the expert. Health Canada has an expert panel reviewing the Cannabis Act right now, and I think they're going to come out with conclusions to say that yeah. Uh, ending prohibition was better uh, on for public health than 
than cannabis prohibition. So I think it is a fair comparison, but um, you have to keep digging. And one of the things about the way the government chooses to legalize cannabis is that they totally control every part of the supply chain. And so if there's a problem in the supply chain, if there's a regulatory problem with the industry, the government needs to stay engaged with the industry to fix it. But the problem is, is that the governments, when I say governments, I mean provincial governments and the federal government have taken a hands-off approach now. And they, it was like the legalize and forget kind of strategy. Um, legalize and forget only works if you're not controlling every single aspect of the industry. If you're controlling every single aspect of the industry and something goes wrong, which it does daily, then, um, things are just going to get worse. And that's what's been happening in the last few years. Okay. And that's I, one of the reasons they're losing so I'm going to circle back on the, on the things going wrong. Um, but I want to establish some context here. So our audience knows, and, and, and again, I want to pump, uh, your platform, mjbizdaily.com. Um, it's where I get a lot of my news. I keep a keen eye on this industry, and it certainly caught my attention yesterday when you and your team reported uh, that cannabis operator Alifia had entered creditor protection after a failed merger. Um, this was uh, credit, uh, creditor protection order granted by an Ontario court. Um, Alifia, in particular, is an interesting one to watch because of some of the pretty high-profile names that were connected to or affiliated with this startup right out of the gates, uh, including Julian Fantino, former police chief in Toronto, former conservative cabinet minister. Um, it now looks like, and I'm going off your reporting, I'll ask you to take us into this, they might leave Canadian taxpayers on the hook for close to $10 million. What's the deal here? I mean, is this as, I don't want to use words like shady, but ah, I'm going to use the word. Is this as shady as it looks? What's going on with this, do you think? This is shady, but it's not any shadier than any other cannabis company uh, filing for creditor protection. It's not unusually shady. It's, it's interesting because, um, yeah, you had a former Toronto police chief. You had a former RCMP deputy commissioner leading this cannabis business. People who, who had, you could say they profited from criminalization because they were gainfully employed by locking up people who were consuming cannabis for, for decades. And a lot of people, uh, if you look at the politics for a second, a lot of people say, well, all, all these liberal insiders and liberal spouses are on these boards of cannabis companies, but it's conservatives too. It's not a liberal thing. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a white-collar downtown Toronto, downtown Ottawa thing, downtown Montreal thing. Like a lot of these wealthy white guys um, who had, have no business in the cannabis industry started cannabis companies and totally embarrassed themselves by losing billions of dollars. Um, so that's the interesting thing about that company, kind of backtracking to look at the, um, money taxpayers might lose. Um, so what's the total, so that company was 10 million and, and that's $10 million in unpaid excise tax. And the other $3 million was the Q's, um, free COVID money that the federal government was irresponsibly handing out to cannabis, to large cannabis businesses. Um, throughout the pandemic. Well, I say irresponsibly because the, we'll talk about this more later, probably briefly right now. There's a there's historic overproduction happening right now in Canada's cannabis industry. We're producing about five, five to 10 times more of every finished product and every, you could say, dried bud that, that we need. 
So there's a major overproduction. And amidst this overproduction, Canada's federal government was shoveling hundreds of millions of dollars of free money into the companies that were pr producing the most cannabis, mass producing the most cannabis that we didn't need. So your Canopy Growth and your Aurora Cannabises that were producing cannabis in airport-sized warehouses, they were producing billions of grams of cannabis and selling only hundreds, maybe tens of millions of grams of cannabis. Um, the federal government was pouring money into these businesses uh, to keep people employed, um, but then the companies were mass laying off people during the pandemic, pocketing the cash and ramping up and still produce mass producing. Um, so that's that was one of the biggest problems during the pandemic was the government was incentivizing licensed producers to overproduce cannabis, which is something no one ever talks about. Um, but this is a fact, like about $300 million were poured into a very small number of large cannabis companies. Of course, smaller companies got the huge money too, but you know, the more employees you have, the more money you've got, which is a really stupid system to have. It doesn't make any sense. But so large companies got tons of money. They were overproducing cannabis and that money provoked them to continue overproducing cannabis. Okay. So, I mean, the, the, the government dumping millions and millions of dollars into this is, is certainly a story. But if you just look at the fact that, you know, you allege or, or maybe you just point out the obvious that there's overproduction of product, as you see some of these LPs, these growers struggling, and some of them, quite frankly, just going into insolvency. Is that just market correction? I mean, is, is that just the way that the market works? Is that like if craft brewers were brewing way more beer than people were able to drink or were interested in drinking and some of them shut down? That's just kind of the way that capitalism and the free market works? So, um, uh, the, the, so one of the things Canada did right in the legalized cannabis is they, Health Canada especially, uh, and Statistics Canada, collected massive, massive amounts of data on the industry and on consumers. And most of that data is either already public, or if you know, or if you know who to ask um, and what to ask for, they'll give it to you, and they'll give it to you freely. So, for example, destroyed cannabis is something that they um, keep track of. Cannabis production is something to keep track of. How much cannabis is, how much cannabis are companies producing uh, monthly, uh, quarterly, annually? Like we can get all this information from Health Canada, which is very, very important because we know there's massive, massive, massive overproduction of cannabis in the industry, and they're only selling about 20% of what they're producing, what they're what they're growing. Um, so that's not really an allegation as much as it is like just supply and demand and get back to your question it's just like any other industry if you're say for a car maker and you're making 100 cars and you're only selling 20 of them you're going to go out of business um in the agriculture industry they usually sell about 90 percent of their production or more tomato growers will sell over 90 95 percent of the tomatoes they grow and obviously the, a small amount will be discarded in the cannabis industry which is an agricultural industry they're only selling 20%. So no business can succeed if they're only selling 20% of their production in any industry in the whole world. It doesn't make a difference. Yeah, no care. Making cars, whatever. If you're producing too much, you're not selling enough, you're not, you're not, you're not sustaining business. And a lot of these, um, we were talking about these uh, former cops and former politicians and 
big wig Bay Street and Wall Street executives who are, you know, Wharton, Harvard educated, $100,000 business degrees. Um, they don't understand agriculture, right? They're not farmers. They went to business school. They probably only stay in cities. They don't go to rural areas where cannabis is grown. They probably don't go to cannabis stores. Um, they don't know anything about agriculture or cannabis production, but they're running these massive cannabis corporations with their agriculture companies. And this is one of the problems that these businesses have, is that they're largely run by executives who live in downtown Toronto, downtown New York City, who don't know the cannabis industry and don't understand agriculture. I, I I appreciate your your ability to sort of take like the high level stuff and 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 make it understandable for the average citizen. When you talk about you know that we can talk whether it's the feds or whether it's the provinces. You know, for example, I know that you know like LPs and retailers in Alberta, in our home province, for example, deal with AGLC and it runs through them. And every province does it differently. You talk about almost an absentee, you didn't use the word, but I'm paraphrasing, like this absentee approach that governments have taken here. You know, they're in charge of it, but they're not paying attention to it. So you say when problems arise, the problems aren't addressed. Uh, This might be too big of a question. Uh, Hone in on the key details if you like, but what are the sorts of problems that we're talking about aside from oversupply? I mean, are there tax problems? Are there access problems? Are there distribution problems? Is it the fact that they can't market? I mean, alcohol can market all they want. Uh, cannabis is treated like tobacco. It can't market whatsoever, though some still do and just pay the fines. What are the biggest problems that you see? Um, okay, so for marketing, I don't think, per, I personally don't think that's an issue. You talk to a cannabis executive, obviously they're going to say, oh, we want to be able to buy commercials. We want to buy we want to buy like the naming rights for their Canada center or whatever it's called now. You know, they want to spend money on marketing. Before legalization, when there were no rules on marketing, the rules only kicked in uh, in October 2018, companies like Aurora Cannabis, they were spending massive amounts of money on marketing. They were holding free concerts all around Canada. They were doing all kinds of really cool things. But I don't think they need to market. I think cannabis consumers know what they want and they don't need they don't need to be spoon fed advertising like if you if we allowed marketing it would be like you're not you're not you're out in alberta i guess right yeah so in ontario matter of, do you have this too where you watch uh, like this professional hockey game on tv and then it's only gambling ads mm-hmm. okay so yeah it, and if that if we had that in cannabis it would be all cannabis and gambling ads like all night long and this is not something this is not a community i want to live in personally i don't want to watch gambling ads. i don't want my children to watch gambling ads i don't want my children to watch cannabis cannabis ads on tv or on the radio and i don't think it's necessary um i think actually it's helpful for the industry that it's banned and the reason i think that is because if the government allowed cannabis advertising like they did alcohol that would benefit the large companies who have massive marketing budgets. So then you would have Canopy and Aurora and Tilray spending tens of millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars on advertising every year. Small companies can't compete with that. So no advertising rules actually benefit smaller businesses. You keep um, you keep mentioning Aurora. Anybody that got rich on Aurora, they were cashed out long ago. I mean, Aurora, oh, yeah. from a shareholder standpoint, Aurora has been nothing but an absolute disaster for like the last three years, right? 
Well, all of them have. I don't think there, yeah. there ha- there's no cannabis, publicly traded cannabis company that hasn't in Canada that hasn't been a disaster in the last three years. So Aurora, I, I don't know if Aurora is any worse than the other ones. I actually think that Aurora um, is being relatively well well run by Miguel Martin, the CEO, because they're focusing now on medical, whereas before they were focusing on rec, recreational cannabis, and there was no future for them, really. No immediate future for them in that. Whereas previously, they were already a successful medical company. So I do like what he's doing with that company. Okay. Um, the tax issue needs to be addressed. So going back to the Alifa example that you raised, um, when companies obtain credit or protection, we can see who they owe money to, which is a great thing for a journalist. So there's a dozens or hundreds of creditors. But guess who's always at the top of the list? The federal government. And that's not normal. Um, if you look at CCAA filings for other businesses and other industries, the government is nowhere to be seen on an unpaid. Why would the government be an unpaid creditor for a failed business? If that's the case, then that's a structural problem with the industry that the federal government created. The federal government made this tax structure, and now businesses are failing specifically because they're being overtaxed and overfeed. And so the federal government collects 100% of the excise revenue, and they redistribute 75% to the provinces. So a lot of people say it's the province's fault, but actually the provinces didn't even come up with the idea. The provinces just, provinces just said, we want more of this excise money you're going to collect. Like, come on, yeah. pass it over. And the federal government said, all right, you can have three quarters of it, so long as you share it with your municipalities, who will be on the front line of cannabis legalization. Guess what? Nobody shared it with municipalities. They just kept it threw it into general revenue and spent it on whatever they wanted. This is a tale as old as time. And 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 there's no way, I mean, like, if, if anyone can come up with an example, uh, actually maybe Stephen Harper living up to his promise of, of taking the GST from 7% to 5%, but, and politicians, Daniel Smith, the premier here in Alberta, has been dropping some taxes like she promised in her campaign uh, to stay as premier. But, but generally speaking, uh, governments do not drop taxes most especially when they're proving to be lucrative i wonder in this case if you could make the argument that dropping taxes would help save businesses perhaps they might but then you got to think about the popularity like does the government pay for that at the polls for a lot of canadians that aren't necessarily keen on cannabis and i respect those folks perspective probably the trade-off for them for being able to live with the fact that it was being legalized in canada was the fact that it was going to be taxed heavily and that it was going to help top up government coffers so to see the federal government or provincial governments for that matter say we're going to try to save the industry by taxing it less i wonder how that might play generally speaking what do you think uh, I, I agree. It's probably not politically popular, but, you know, fuck it, because they yeah. created all of these rules, and it's, it, it's incumbent on them to stay engaged with the industry and address the rules they created, they imposed on the industry. So Alifa Health, for example, very poorly run business, um, had the wrong people in charge, had the wrong people on their boards. Its failure was inevitable. But if you look at their unpaid uh, debts, half of the $27 million they owe is to the federal government. And so that's just an example. And if you look at all the cannabis companies entering CCAA, a substantial portion of their debts are to the federal government. And so unless they change that, more businesses will fail faster. Um, people will lose their jobs. Regular people are losing their investments. This is something that has to be addressed, and it has to be addressed very soon. 
another externality to the current system that the federal government imposed is if they don't change it, this is going to be an industry that's going to be quickly dominated by two or three businesses. Um, no one, your guess is as good as mine as to who they are, um, but nobody in cannabis wants an industry like that. Consumers don't want that. Businesses don't want that. Um, does the federal government want that? I'm trying to find out if this is something they're doing on purpose. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe they are a lot, of, but this is a conspiracy theory. A lot of people think that the federal government is doing this on purpose to the industry. I'm not saying they are. I'm just saying that um, I'm trying to find out. I'm trying to find out if they're doing this on purpose or not. I don't think it's 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 good in any context. Off the top of my head, it, like whether it's restaurants, whether it's agricultural producers, uh, in anything like clothing manufacturers, take your pick. If there's only two or three businesses in the game. You know, we, we, we proudly as, as a family are investing. My brother's the master grower and operations manager at Joy Botanicals just outside of Calgary. And we're proud of the fact that we're a boutique grower. We're proud of the quality of our product. We're proud of the fact that we hand trim absolutely everything. We're proud. We believe this is, that this is what people want. Consumers want this. And this is what industry people want. And you're not Retailers getting that. You don't get that in, in an 800,000 square foot warehouse by the Edmonton International Airport that, that's run by Aurora, which, as a matter of fact, now they're growing tulips there because it, the cannabis right. well, experiment failed. Yeah, right? that's why, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's why it didn't work. Right. I can't believe you said that the $8 billion. I, I'd never heard that before. Actually, you, you that's breaking news to me right here on Real Talk that the that, that Canadians are, are, are consuming as much cannabis revenue wise as they are alcohol. That blows my mind. Um, beer, not alcohol, just beer. Pardon me, beer. Um, but it but it, it, it does like reiterate the fact that there is a market for it um i'm curious to know where people would be getting numbers either you or the government saying you know 60 percent is legally bought 75 percent is legally bought nobody has any idea who's buying what from the same guy they've bought weed from for 25 years right has to be a general estimate it's a guess and but it's an educated guess Statistics canada has a huge formula this and it's on their website they explain how they come to this uh this number which they release quarterly uh, personally, I think they're overestimating um, the amount of cannabis that's bought in the legal industry versus the illegal industry. Uh, but that's just me. A lot of people think the data is accurate. So it, even if it's accurate, 75%. Um, an incentive for the government to amend the tax or lower the tax would be to get to 100%, 100% faster. The sooner you get to 100%, uh, the better it will be for everybody. Matt, let me ask you, what, what's what's the indigenous angle on this? You touched on that. So that's a complicated one. It's really important. Um, if you do a control F in the Cannabis Act and a control F in the regulations, you won't find Indigenous or First Nations mentioned there at all. Um, actually, they're mentioned once in terms of after four years, we're going to review, or three years, three or four years, we're going to review the law. And in particular, we're going to study the law's effect on Indigenous communities. That's the only mention of them in the law. Um which is outrageously unfair and I think illegal. I think if the Cannabis Act was brought to the Supreme Court, uh, the Supreme Court would say that it's unconstitutional because the federal government didn't meaningfully, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Consult? Consult, consult with First Nations. They consulted with them, but it wasn't meaningful because they took all the stuff that they were told and they totally ignored it and didn't do anything. So that's why I think it's unconstitutional. We've seen this in other industries as well, especially in oil and gas. I think that this is a, a threat to the industry and the government has to address it. 
there has to be a reason, a legal reason, the government didn't include Indigenous people in the law. Uh, they won't tell me or anyone else because it's legal advice and they don't share legal legal advice, right? So it's secret. Um, there's two reasons I think it's outrageous. One is that um, from a moral perspective, an ethics perspective, no one in Canada suffered more under cannabis prohibition than Indigenous people. I know this from personal experience because I lived, in, I, I grew up in Thunder Bay a little bit, uh, and I, I travel a lot, and I lived in northern communities um, where I see criminalization of Indigenous people. I, I saw that I witnessed it growing up all the time, where I thought it was normal, and then when when, it, when I became older, I was like, "Well, this is kind of kind of insane what they're doing up there." Um, but anyway, so from an ethical perspective, Indigenous people suffered the most under prohibition, and then they got nothing out of legalization. Nothing. In states in the U.S. that legalize cannabis, almost every state that has legalized cannabis has some kind of social equity program to right the wrongs, so to speak, to give people who were uh, criminalized the most under prohibition um, some kind of entry point into the legal industry. Uh, Canada did nothing. The federal government did nothing. Most of the provinces did nothing. Right now we're starting to see, like British Columbia has a couple of good programs. Ontario just started five years later, their first program. It's terrible, but it's a first start. So it's going to go and it's going to improve. It's going to improve. More people will enter the industry who are criminalized. It's a step. It's a step in the right direction. Saskatchewan actually has the best law because their law is going to recognize in Indigenous laws that are uh, First Nations laws that they make for their own communities. Um, so that's a huge step forward. But that's only provincial and not federal. Um, Quebec has a law that allows them to enter into enter into deals with First Nations to regulate cannabis. But they they haven't done they haven't entered any such agreements. I think Ontario also has the same clause in their law, and they've also entered no such agreements. So from an ethical standpoint, it's been a major failure because Indigenous people can't enter the industry. And when you, I was curious about this myself. People told me this was going to happen before legalization. I waited a few years till the data came in, and I looked at all of the all of the legal legal cannabis stores in Canada. And only under one, well under one percent of them are in indigenous communities. Um, and I looked at all of the cannabis cultivation operations in Canada. Also, under one percent are in indigenous communities. So that tells you two things: one, Canada's cannabis law didn't um, engage indigenous people meaningfully, so indigenous people ignored that law. Uh, number two, um, it tells you that. All of the cannabis being sold in indigenous communities is what the federal government would tell you is illegal. Um, although I always I use illegal because um, in, in in First Nations communities, what's legal and what's not legal is not necessarily cut and dry. Yeah, fair so, point. Uh, so A, they can't participate in the industry. B, almost all the cannabis that's being sold there is illegal. Um Illegal. The, the third thing, I guess, is the um, it's those, those are moral reasons. Those are ethical obligations the federal and provincial governments have to engage indigenous people to facilitate their entry into the industry. But a lot of people don't take ethics seriously. So I'll give you a business reason. 
Um, and I touched on that just a second ago. But the business reason that the federal and provincial governments should facilitate indigenous entry into the legal industry, because if they don't, indigenous people will still participate in the industry. It's just going to be totally illegal and under their own rules. So right now you go online and buy illegal cannabis. Uh, there's a good chance it's going to be coming from a First Nations community. And it's not going to have any limits. Uh, the edibles won't have any limits, limits on THC. The uh, packaging won't, won't have any any limits. So it's all going to be a, it's all going to be a, it's going to be a total free for all. Huh. What you get, what you get is going to be a free for all. And legal businesses are competing against these um, illegal businesses, and they're prolific now. And since 2018, they have exploded in indigenous communities. The number of um, unregulated, the number of provincially unregulated cannabis stores has exploded in First Nations communities since 2018. No one in the federal government is acknowledging that. The number of um, the number of cultivation and production operations that are unregulated by the federal government has exploded in, in Indigenous communities, and this is being totally ignored by the federal government. You know who can ignore it, though? Is publicly traded companies, because they compete with those businesses. I talk to those CEOs, and they're like, we need more, we need, and they always say, we need more enforcement. You see it in op-eds in the National Post and the Toronto Star. Some CEO will write an op-ed saying, why is the RCMP enforcing this cannabis? The reason they're not enforcing the cannabis rules is because those illegal businesses are in indigenous communities and they can't. Mm. So the federal government has to, they have to, they don't have a choice because we can't go back. We can't go back to criminalization. The federal government has to pass another law saying that indigenous people are allowed to regulate cannabis in accordance with their own principles. A lot of people won't like that because that means that they will have different limits on their THC edibles. They'll have different packaging rules, different marketing rules, different different everything rules. But the fact is that if you don't do it, they're going to do it anyways, and there's going to be no rules. Yeah, some, right. So some you, advice you for the, some advice for the everyday uh, folks out there. Uh, make sure you're aware of the THC levels on your edibles, uh, or or you could be in for a wild ride. Uh, I, <laughs> I had a. You, you we, we let, let me I'll let people know real quick. Um, if you want to hear, we we talked to to Jody Emery, Canada's princess of pot, back on uh, four twenty on April twentieth. Uh, a really solid perspective and good conversation on who else has been frozen out of legalized cannabis and the industry uh, in Canada, all the way across the country. You can find that in our podcast archive, or you can watch it on YouTube. That's the April twentieth, twenty twenty three episode of of Real Talk. Um, hey, before I let you go, Matt, I want to ask you real quick. Just I'm I'm just curious about your business model, about MJ Biz Daily. You you cover, uh, you know, the cannabis industry in Canada, in Europe, in Latin America, in Asia, but but not in the U.S. I'm just intrigued as to why. Oh, just me. I don't cover it in the U.S. because I have about ten colleagues that do it for me. Oh, down I, see, there. I see, I see, I see, I see. Very complicated because each state is like a different country. Each state has their own totally different rules. Yeah, and so I couldn't even like keeping track of what Europe is doing, what Canada is doing. Caribbean, Asia, Africa, like it's, it's, it's a big mess right now. For sure. Yeah, I misunderstood your bio. I just thought that maybe you were freezing out the U.S. market or something. I was intrigued as to why. <laughs> That's a huge market, the biggest cannabis market in the world. Yeah. No Do you want to talk about import-export for yeah, a second? Yeah, sure. So um, if there's any prospective cannabis entrepreneurs here, I get this. I get this a lot. A lot of people think that, oh, if cannabis, if cannabis is producing five times more cannabis than we need, why can't we just export it? The reason is, is there's no import market. 
And a lot of countries in the world are legalizing medical cannabis uh, in a small number are legalizing recreational cannabis. There's mostly medical cannabis right now. They're legalizing medical cannabis. Why? They think that it's going to be a major export industry for them. So they're doing it for money. But the problem is, is that no one is excited about importing cannabis, medical cannabis. But the biggest import market in the world right now is Germany, and they only import 20,000 kilograms a year, which is nothing. Israel imports a little bit more, I'm sorry, a little bit less, uh, and Australia imports. Is, is probably, Australia is probably number three. But the point is, though, is that if you're going to grow cannabis in Canada, in Colombia, in, in Spain, in Greece, in Australia, in New Zealand, wherever you're growing it, um, the import market for your export uh, is very small. And that's not to say it's, it's not changing. Like Canada's that exports have actually increased substantially in the last five years. But the export market is still very small. So at the most, it's going to be kind of an ancillary um, revenue stream for, for any for any legal cannabis business. It's not going to sustain your business. And you certainly won't be able to export uh, all of your overproduction. Wow. Which was, by the way, like if you talk to... Canada CEO who was making $20 million back in 2018, that's what he would have told you. He would have told you that, um, and they're all white men from Toronto, by no, the way. No, Matt, they, Terry Booth, the CEO of Aurora, said that to my face in person yeah. sitting in a radio studio. So I know exactly what you're talking about. They told, me, they told that to me, too. Yeah. But, you know, but there's no import markets, right? So, uh, and that's not going to change. No one's, no one's going to legalize medical cannabis in, like, like, Spain's not going to legalize medical cannabis and be like, oh, we're not going to grow it ourselves. We're going to import it from Canada or we're going to import it from Colombia. It doesn't make any sense. The, one of the reasons people legalize medical cannabis is to give people, um, to give farmers jobs. No one's going to legalize medical cannabis. No large country is going to legalize medical cannabis and, cannabis and say, we're only going to import. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to. We've got another guest in the bullpen, and he's been super patient. I'd want to take our conversation to the full hour-long mark here, but I, but I would maybe argue against that premise in the sense that if you know, then this comes back to the idea around marketing and reputation and 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 brand development. Like people do import, uh, you know, people do import Alberta beef, right? People do import Colombian coffee. People do import you know, uh, products from jurisdictions that have a reputation from doing that product the best. Um, and I wonder if, I mean, B, BC Bud had a reputation for like 50 years before this was legalized. Yeah, they still do, right? There's still a large illegal export industry. You, actually, the biggest, the most crimes that the people are getting charged for illegal import-export the most um, now, whereas like five, 10 years ago it was, uh, possession. But, but even what you're saying is true. The import market, which we have data for, is very, very small. Uh, under 40,000 kilograms for the whole planet. 40,000 kilograms. You know, Canada produced over 1 million kilograms of cannabis, like 1.5 million grams of cannabis last year. And we sold about 400,000 kilograms of it. Wow. That's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Um, Matt, I want to thank you so much for joining. Hell of a debut here on Real Talk, and I'll look forward to us connecting again. Uh, maybe we'll book you in advance for our next 420 roundtable. So circle April 20th on your calendar and, and maybe kick off that day with us here on the show. Sound good? I would love to. Thank you. All right, buddy. That's Matt Lammers. Uh, he's the international editor of MJ Biz Daily. You can find them online, and we'll link to them in the show notes on the podcast and on YouTube. Careful with those edibles. Dude. Oh. <laughs> 
Like he, that's one of the things where, and, and that's no laughing matter. Uh, you not know, not for, at all. For some people that, you know, and, and everybody's different. I would never give advice on this. Don't take our advice on, on what's a good fit for you. Uh, you know, it's in, in so many ways as like, you know, mm-hmm. two shots of vodka might be way too much for somebody and two shots of vodka might be not nearly enough for somebody else to get where they're intending to go, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some people might want fi- a five milligram gummy, a 2.5 milligram gummy before they go to the Springsteen concert. And, and somebody might want a 60 milligram gummy. Uh, though I don't recommend that as your first foray into it. I don't recommend that to anyone. No, I don't recommend that to anybody, really, uh, <laughs> unless you really know what you're doing. I love this. Uh, I want to become personal friends with Tony in our live chat. Uh, Tony says, this is such an interesting topic. Uh, she says, I'm definitely going to rewatch this episode. Both uh, the hubby and I, uh, we don't smoke, but we love to grow it and give it away. Well, there you go. Tony. Best friends. Tony's invited to the next Real Talk party. <laughs> Took an edible Christmas Eve four years ago. Questioned reality. Yeah, that's how. Was it an unregulated, unbranded? Like you sort of didn't have all the details on it. This was. uh, Let's just get on it. I gave you a cookie. Yeah, it's still sitting in my office. I haven't touched it. So that that's one that my partner got and was she took she always tests like a piece of it yeah a portion of it's it. it's like a it's like a uh, sort of a replica mm-hmm. oreo cookie mm-hmm. and she had literally one maybe 16th of it yeah and she was like give this to ryan <laughs> like it was just uh and whatever we took on christmas eve it was just uh, it was it was uh, it was just, they just you gotta start slow and you you're right you gotta it's not the same for everyone, right? But this one was just, it wasn't a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a good thing. I was like, I got to do my taxes. I got to call my mom or it's, you know, all that anxiety that comes with that's, I was trying to get rid of the anxiety. It was yes. Christmas Eve. I was trying yeah. to relax, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. Not exactly what you were looking for. <laughs> hey, words to the wise. We appreciate that. You can let us know how these conversations are landing with you by sending us a note to talk at ryanjesperson.com. We owe Markham Hislop a, a gift, I think, because uh, awesome we, we, we left him sitting in our bullpen for like 25 minutes here but we're going to get to him in just a second from from an industry doing big business but struggling right now cannabis to an industry just doing big business period uh oil and gas canada's energy industry we're going to get to markham in just a second but you know that every single wednesday it's our absolute pleasure to, to head out to jasper national park it's a tradition here on the show we call my jasper memories Presented by our friends at Tourism Jasper, and, and and sometimes we're just celebrating the incredible aspects that the park, you know, I mean, brings to the table and has done for time immemorial. Sometimes we're celebrating the indigenous history in the region. Sometimes we're celebrating the restaurant scene. Sometimes we're giving you ideas on the best cabin culture or the best Jasper patios. But today we're going to focus in on one of my favorite festivals in the country and i say that having attended a whole bunch of them coming up for the 13th year in a row is the jasper dark sky festival this is when you know astronauts and aurora chasers and and space enthusiasts from across the continent are going to gather in the canadian rockies uh, from october 13th to the 22nd so this is a great time to put your plan in place it's a -a one-of-a-kind annual event that promises cosmic concerts fascinating speakers and supernova sized experiences this is located within the world's largest accessible dark sky preserve 
Stargazers will find plenty to dazzle their telescopes at the 2023 Jasper Dark Sky Festival. But science enthusiasts will also find events to light up their frontal lobe. This Dark Sky Festival in Jasper invites everybody to immerse themselves in the wonder of the universe with a whole bunch of options for people to do from all age groups. Uh, I mean, the speakers here, retired astronaut Mark Garneau, award-winning space flight history writer Emily Carney, uh, NASA scientist Dr. Kartik Sheth is going to be there talking about everything from space funerals to cosmic weather trackers. You can check it out online at jasperdarksky.travel. A drone light show. There's a brand new Science for Breakfast series that, that introduces Talk Nerdy to me. What a cool event that is. The Science of Brewing and a whole lot more. And then, of course, they'll have guides on hand at the Jasper Planetarium for stargazing sessions. My wife, Carrie, and I did that with our little guy, Wyatt, and it was an event that I don't think the three of us will ever forget. There's family-friendly activities, Symphony Under the Stars uh, at the luxurious Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge. There's going to be indigenous performances, a sunset ceremony at Annette Lake, and fun, futuristic rock songs performed at the outdoor stage by Jay Ingram and the Dark Sky Band. You can check out the full schedule of events. You can purchase your tickets online today at jasperdarksky.travel. My Jasper Memories is proudly presented Wednesdays on Real Talk by our friends at Tourism Jasper. Well, our next guest has been a wonderful friend of the show for many years, and we have a heck of a lot of respect for his approach to journalism as an independent. You can find his thoughtful journalism about energy's future at energy.media. That's E-N-E-R-G-I dot media. It's Markham Hislop, and Markham, I very rarely open an interview with an apology, but we were so immersed in the conversation about cannabis culture and the state of affairs with the industry across Canada that we went a little long with Matt Lammers out of the gates. Thanks for hanging around, and it's great to see your face. Well, thanks, uh, uh, Ryan. And, uh, you know, based on what we're going to be discussing, uh, being a little stoned would not be a bad uh, choice right now. <laughs> okay, why is that? Well, you know, you had me on when we published part one of the Unethical Oil series, and now we're on, we published part two, which is about conventional oil and gas liabilities and how Alberta got into the mess and how big the mess is and what the chances are that Alberta is going to ever dig itself out of the mess, or is the Alberta taxpayer going to have to, you know, basically pay for, you know, tens of billions and maybe well over a hundred billion to clean up this mess. Uh and it's now we talked about it before. Now I can tell you how we got into this mess, why we're here. And it's a sad, sad story, my friend. Okay. So how has, this is an investigative series. Uh, people can check it out on, on your website, energy.media. Uh, right. Of course they can follow you on Twitter at political ham. Uh, let's get started. So, so what does part two, where does part two kick off? Where did we leave off last conversation? Well, the last conversation was, um, uh, You'll remember that that uh, question you asked me about whether we're going to, I forget how you phrased it, but, you know, are we going to be able to get out of this mess? And I took a long time to answer it. Uh, and and I eventually said, I don't think so. I, I think this problem has just become too big. And so where we're at now is 
I can explain how we got into this on the conventional side. And remember, this industry in Alberta is divided up basically into two parts. One is the conventional oil and gas production. So we're talking about 500,000 barrels a day, roughly, of oil and about 10 billion cubic feet of gas. And then, of course, you've got the oil sands, which dominates oil production at about 3.2 million barrels a day. And it has its own set of environmental uh, liability issues, which is around $130 billion. But let's talk about the conventional side. So the you know production in Alberta has been around you know for over a hundred years and uh, really Alberta started regulating in the uh, about 1938 the formation of the first uh, regulator and the there's a the question is when you have an oil and gas wealth I mean sooner or later they all are depleted and they and they have to be reclaimed by law you have to you know, have to clean them up and the well site has to be plugged and and sealed and then you have to reclaim the the well site and the uh the uh, the regulator from the very beginning uh and this is it's hilarious reading the old regulator documents and i've had you know they've been, they've been foiped through the current regulator and uh i owe uh, uh people like drew uchuk the university of calgary lawyer a debt of gratitude for sharing those with me and there have been others uh, but they've always operated on the assumption that the industry would do the right thing, right? Like when they drilled the well, eventually 10, 20, 30 years, whenever it needed to be cleaned up, the industry would clean it up. Well, there's this great letter in 1995 where the, the regulator is, of course, it's an internal audience, so you can, and the regulator is frank. And it says, you know, this is kind of what we thought was going to happen. Boy, were we wrong. Because instead, what the companies have done is the big companies would go out and they would drill these wells. And then once they, you know, didn't become as, as economic, they were depleted a bit, they would sell them to smaller companies who then might sell them to a smaller company yet or a smaller company yet. And eventually you'd get down to these little companies and they would go bankrupt and then there would be nobody to claim, the, to reclaim the well. So the question has always been, where in that well life cycle do you intervene to make sure that the company uh, cleans it up? So you could, as uh, Alberta did up to 1986, you could take security against it. And all the American states did this, and they made exactly the same mistake as Alberta, which is they only took just a little bit of security, just just a, a smidgen, you know, for, for appearance's sake, apparently. And that has got the American states in a huge problem. There may be as many as a million and a half orphan wells uh, in the U.S. Uh, and here in Alberta, we don't know how many because we hide them in different categories. But nevertheless, in 1986, uh, there's a document that's, where the regulator says, look, we're tired of taking this little smidgen of security. Uh, we're now going to get rid of that entirely. And we're going to go to the idea of an abandonment fund. So we're going to have this fund of money, and initially it was $3 million, it was a pittance, and we'll, uh, and only the bankrupt companies, the real orphan companies, uh, the orphan wells, those bills will be handled by the $3 million, $3 million. Well, of course, that was a disaster because in the late 80s, there were uh, prices fell, and then there were a bunch of companies that failed, and then there were a bunch of wells that became orphans, uh, or de facto orphans, as I call them. Uh, hiding in these other categories. And and so in 1991, there's this great 
speech, uh, it just lays it out. There's a an executive of the regulator at the time, which was I think it was the Energy and Utilities Board, and he's speaking to a drilling conference in Calgary. And of course, it's it's the industry, right? So uh, they can be frank with each other. And we have a copy of his speech. And he lays it out and he says, look, this has become a huge problem. We've now got, you know, 25 or 30,000 of these inactive wells that really don't have a, an, an owner, uh, should be considered orphan wells. And he said, we've been working with industry for the past few years now. We've got these committees. And he said, we propose to industry, because there's no other stakeholders uh, at this time that are involved. It's just this is industry and the regulator. And he says, we have this chain of responsibility and there are seven and they and the first the one at the top of course would be the company that owned the well and uh the licensee and then it goes down and about number three is former licensees former owners of the well so imagine if you're imperial oil or shell or conoco phillips and the government says hey you know that well you sold 20 30 years ago that you know joe blow now owned that thing and went bankrupt yeah, we're coming back for that. You're going to have to clean that up. And then there was another one down, you know, former mineral rights holders. Again, those same, exact same big companies. And the uh, the uh, the oil industry said, oh, no, 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 no. We want nothing to do with that. We sold it. You can't come back on us now. But here, we have a counter proposal for you. We will collectively assume the responsibility for all of the bankrupt wells uh, or the bankrupt companies that uh, throw orphan wells into the into the suspend you know the orf, uh, suspended inactive category. So this is really point. You've had Mark uh, Dorn of the Pay, uh, Pluto Pay Foundation. He's in our chat right now. Yeah, he is. And and Mark makes the point that this is the moment when the industry accepted responsibility for all environment oil and gas environmental liabilities in the province. Whether the uh, they did it, that they assumed the collective responsibility, and this eventually led to what we now know as the Orphan Well Association. Uh, the problem is between then and now, the industry the problem has become you know gigantic. You know, back when it was millions of dollars, the industry was happy to step up and say, "Oh no, no, no!" You know, we'll all we'll all do this collectively. Uh, but now that it's maybe a hundred billion or hundred and thirty billion industry doesn't want anything to do with it. And here's another little, there are so many stories in this, Ryan, so I'm going to try to keep it as, as short as I can. Uh, but I've interviewed a couple of experts who are in the business or were in the business, who, and one of them is Dan Wicklum. He was the former head of the Canadian Oil Sands Innovation Alliance. Another one is Will Ratliff, who has uh, been in liability management his entire career in the oil and gas industry, currently serves as a consultant to oil and gas companies. And there is a very, very curious approach to environmental liabilities in oil and gas companies. They say, you and I, if that was on our balance sheet, our personal balance sheets, we would say, well, that's a debt, right? And I have to pay my debts. And so I would be setting aside money from my revenue, my income to pay those debts. Well, that's not how the oil and gas industry looks at it. They look at it and go, okay, we have X amount of capital every year and there's competition within the company for how that capital should be allocated. So if you're a conventional producer, uh, the big one would be, do we drill new wells? Uh, what kind of activity, where do we spend our capital that generates revenue, generates income for us? That's our first priority. Well, guess what? Since 
you know, old dirty wells are actually a cost to a net cost to the company, they go, no, we don't going to do that. We're we're only going to expend our capital on things that will generate income. If we can't profit from cleaning up a dirty old well, we're not going to do it. And it'll sit in that suspended inactive category where there's currently 82,635 of them. And we just won't bother to do it. And so this is, you know, how do you get these guys to accept responsibility for the mess they've made when they want to, will only assume responsibility for this when they can make a profit at it? I put it to you, Ryan. Can you imagine a scenario? Where that would happen. Well, uh, by the way, I, I should mention to people because I know people are going to be curious to know this. Your, your last appearance on the show, because people are going to want to get into uh, and watch part one of this was on uh, May 17th. Time has sure flown, although I didn't do bad on my estimate. I thought it was six weeks ago. So not too bad. It was like two months ago. Uh, but that was uh, Markham Hislop. That was part one of, of the episode you're looking for. If you're looking right. at our podcast archives or on YouTube, Unethical Oil, Alberta's $300 billion mess. We've seen different estimates, right? I talked to uh, Minister Gabot just a while ago, and 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 he's into the into the hundred billion dollar range. Some have estimated as high as three hundred billion. I know that you at Energy uh, Energy Media have stuck to sort of one hundred and thirty to one hundred and fifty billion or so. Um, are you surprised that with 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 people sounding the alarm like yourself? Other advocates, like you say, Mark Doran, Reagan Boychuk, they've obviously been very prominent. Uh, Alberta Views magazine has reported on this, as have other mainstream media outlets that generally speaking, and, and I'm just putting my finger on the pulse here, um, the general public doesn't seem to care. Like, do you, Are you a little surprised? No. Uh, d- disturbed, worried. Uh, the only, one of the, Let's back up. The last interview that you did, we talked about about capture. So there's regulatory capture where the industry captures the regulator and the, and the regulator begins to think that the company corporate interest is the public interest, confuses the two. Well, there's also cultural capture. And Alberta is a lot like, like I, I've worked in, a, in the industry in Oklahoma and Texas where, you know, people are so identified with oil and gas that if you attack oil and gas, it's like attacking their own identity. Mm. And pollster Janet Brown out of Calgary, you know, I know I'm pretty sure you've had Janet on your show, yep. uh, has done polling on this. And it's very clear that Albertans are so identified with oil and gas that more than 50% of them, uh, according to Janet's numbers, if you attack oil and gas, you're attacking them. So they're already the bulk of the Alberta public uh, is so pro oil and gas, they don't want to hear this issue. They don't. The only thing that's going to make people wake up is when they come for their checkbook. And that's the danger of, of Premier Danielle Smith's R Star program. Uh, it got shelved. Remember, she didn't want to talk about it during the election campaign. No, no, you know, we're not, we're, that, that's off, off the table now. Uh, well, then she sent out her mandate letters to uh, uh, Energy Minister Brian Jean and, Re- and Environment Minister Rebecca Schultz. And she kind of put it back. She didn't call it our star, but she said that there has to be a way to pay for this. And it sure sounded like, you know, one of the, the options that would be investigated to bring our star back. So $20 billion was her proposal when she was an oil and gas lobbyist in 2021, which according to Professor Andrew Leach of the U of A, uh, would be would cost the government six billion dollars, but of course 
Smith also talked about double credits under RSTAR, so it might be as high as $12 billion. Now, when the taxpayer starts to see its public, you know, its money going out to clean up old oil and gas wells and said while their health healthcare services decline, while their education budgets get cut, maybe then they'll start paying attention because uh, until then that they won't. But you know what? That's coming, right? I think we're we're only years away, a few years away from the from this becoming such a big problem that the the government will have to step in and in part two of unethical oil, we make the argument that the industry has no intention of paying all of its, and even a large part of its liabilities. They have no intention. All you have to do, and we've talked about this on the first, the previous interview, is look where the money is going, look at the size of the problem, and there is no hope that in the foreseeable future that industry is going to step up. But I, I never want to, I mean, we, we never want to uh, avoid the truth. We never want to sugarcoat or powder puff a story. Uh, but at the same time, we don't want to leave people feeling nothing but despair at the end of an interview. Is, is there any reason for optimism? Is, is, there, is there something that could turn the tide? Do you have one takeaway from folks that right now might just be feeling a bit of a gut punch over all of this? Well, there's two options here. I mean, it's not as if the Alberta government ha- doesn't have options, okay? There are, it's political will is lacking. But in part two, I talk about two options that have been put forward. One of them is Mark Doran's, which he basically says all the pieces of the puzzle are in in law. Got, companies are required to, to reclaim. In law, uh, the, they are collectively responsible for all of the liabilities all the government has to do is enforce the law and it could transfer. And instead of uh, like, it, and in fairness to Daniel Smith and UCP uh, in 2020, they brought in this new liability management uh, framework. And then in 2022, they brought in the inventory reduction program where now we have mandatory spending. So last year was 600 million, 2027 will be $992 million drop in the bucket. But nevertheless, we've got that government could say, Hey, you know what, guys? Next year it's going to be five billion, and then it's going to be five billion for the next ten years or twenty years, and you're going to get this whole mess cleaned up. So that's Mark Dorn's take. Now the uh, Reagan Boychuk, who you may—I I know you've interviewed him at yeah, some point. Yeah, he's been on. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So Reagan and his group at the Alberta Liability Disclosure Project—they proposed a reclamation trust, and what they said was there are plenty of wells that maybe aren't. Um, uh, uh, at the beginning of their life, their economic life, but they're still making enough revenue that they could be taken from the private uh, companies, put into this reclamation trust, and instead of paying back shareholders and paying, that the profits would go to starting to reclaim these uh, liabilities. So again, now you can imagine if a UCP government, a conservative government proposed, hey, you know what, we're going to expropriate uh, oil wells uh, and other facilities and infrastructure in order to pay down your debts, I mean, heads would explode in Alberta. So you can imagine what kind of a political uh, hullabaloo that would create. But those at least are two options that could be sit- considered. And, you know, I'm sure if we put our head together, we might uh, might be able to come up with a few more. 
Uh, want to let people know again, and, and I appreciate you pumping our past episodes, Mark. If, if people want to hear you, you, you've, you've talked about uh, Reagan Boychuk and Mark Doran. Um, if people want to see that interview, uh, is our star a scam? That was the question that we asked back on February 9th of this year. Uh, and you can find that, of course, on our YouTube archive. Nice and easy to find February 9th of 2023. And it'll be there in the podcast archive as well. Um, you can check out what Markham is talking about by visiting his site. That's energy.media. That's E-N-E-R-G-I dot media. It's thoughtful journalism about energy's future. Man, I've got a hell of a lot of respect for your passion and for the commitment you have to this, uh, including the amount of effort that happens behind the scenes. I don't know that the, the average person realizes what goes into investigating reports but between the time that you announce your intention to do it and the time that you release it it's a lot of conversations it's a ton of fact checking um and you've done a great job with it markham thanks for making time for us uh, always a pleasure and i look forward to talking to you probably in uh, september about unethical oil part three which will be all about the oil sands and baby if you think part two was a, an eye-opener wait till you see part three when we start talking about about all the disturbance up in northern Alberta, tailings ponds, and all of that. It's a magnitude's worse than on the conventional side. Okay. That's Markham Hislop, publisher of Energy Media. You can follow him on Twitter at Political Ham. Uh, we got an email from JC down in Calgary, uh, and uh, I want to get to that in just a second. This was prompted by you. You've noticed we've been talking about this a lot on the show lately. It's a a commitment that we have to you and especially i don't know johnny if you feel this like in the summer months we can dig a little bit deeper into stuff we can we're pushing out more series and, mm -hmm. and some of the, the the deeper dives into some of the issues because mm -hmm. on other fronts politics and otherwise the news cycle it doesn't certainly dry up there's a lot happening i mean today for example there's going to be a, a pretty significant cabinet shuffle um as we're saying it there's going to be as most of you are listening to this it's probably trending already on happened. twitter right now yeah. yeah so you've got you've got like seven minutes Ministers. There's there's a whole bunch that are saying, including mm -hmm. Carolyn Bennett, uh, uh, Minister Omar Al Habra, that they're saying they're not running again. And so this is, you know, they're they're talking about this is the Prime Minister retooling mm -hmm. uh, for the next federal election and, and putting what what some pundits are saying is maybe some some more um, sellable or economically, you know, savvy or or, or politically marketable. Uh, prominent MPs or cabinet ministers into portfolios where they think they can hit the ground running on a federal campaign. But but aside from that, there's not a ton. Yeah, there's less that happens. in the there's summer months. less that happens, politically speaking. And, and, and then that gives us a longer leash to pursue some of these other stories. One of those is, is on methane. And if you missed it uh, last week, uh, it was it was a, it was a week ago today. We talked to Jeff Galis uh, out of Missoula, Montana, but a born and raised Alberta boy uh, and a uh, a well-regarded environmental journalist and author about his piece, Hidden Harm, in Alberta Views magazine. Uh, it was a fascinating conversation. I had no idea that they're able to survey and monitor methane leaks from satellites and space. I mean, just mind-blowing stuff, and he takes us into the technology but of course, there's a there's a gut punch on that story, too. And that that is that, you know, for example, in Alberta, a lot of those oversights were glaring. It, it was French officials that were notifying Alberta based companies or at least companies that are operating in Alberta that there had been methane leaks. It was flying under the radar here in our home province. It was a real wake up call, that interview. And uh, of course, it reiterated to us 
the importance of and the value of good journalism. And we wanted to give a shout out to our friends at Alberta Views Magazine and remind you that you can subscribe to Alberta Views. This is a, a, a special exclusive for Real Talkers with the promo code AVRJ for 50% off the regular price, which means you're getting 10 issues delivered to your door for 20 bucks, $20 a year uh, to read the magazine for engaged citizens. That's Alberta Views at albertaviews.ca. I'm going to get to JC's email on on methane and he ties it into bitcoin this is kind of an interesting one in just a second but i wanted to remind you that these conversations happen with the support of real talk sponsors like our friends at complete care restoration appreciated hearing from a, a friend of real talk yesterday i feel sick for her uh they've got a basement flood that they're dealing with they just finished renovations which sucks and then the basement goes and floods. Isn't that the way that it goes? I said, you know who you need to call? I said, it's Complete Care Restoration. It's 780-454-0776. So she's going to do it. They're the experts in flood damage, fire damage, mold and asbestos removal. And then even if you're not dealing with a, a natural disaster or other nightmare, if you're just looking to renovate a space like we were, we recommend Complete Care Restoration. It's a family-owned business. They've been operating for more than 10 years. This is an amazing success story. They started operating out of a garage, and now they're one of Alberta's most recognized and respected companies in this space. We're proud to give a two-thumbs-up endorsement to the team at Complete Care Restoration. We also wanted to mention to all you decision makers out there, whether you're working for a municipality, uh, whether you're making decisions based on the bottom line of a big or a small business, you're going to want to keep it local. When it comes to garbage and recycling in Alberta and Saskatchewan, that means a conversation with local environmental services. They provide the big huge roll-off bins you know the ones i'm talking about they drop them off for like roofing or siding projects for big home renovations or the, the smaller front load bins like you see outside restaurants they do them both uh, also water hauling and portable toilets fencing vacuum truck services one call could save you a whole bunch of money month after month after month you can learn more by visiting localenvironmental.ca talking about the emerging renewable space uh, i mean kubi renewable energy uh, established quite some time ago by an electrician a journeyman electrician working in the oil sands by the name of jake kubiski who saw huge promise in solar he started small with a couple other guys they've grown it into one of western canada's largest solar installers and they've earned the trust of their customers and their future customers because they see the proof the evidence in the finished product, you go to their website, kubienergy.ca, you see this massive installation they did on the roof of the Edmonton Convention Center. But then you can check out their blog, check out the projects link, and, and you'll soon see that they do it all. Uh, whether it's homes, farms, big industrial complexes, commercial spaces, whether it's in BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Northwest Territories, Kubi Energy does it, and they do it better than anybody else. Oh, and by the way, they're hiring. If you want to be part of moving Canada's green energy goals forward, we recommend a call to Kubi Energy or a visit uh, to their website today. Check out the careers link at kubienergy.ca. If you're watching on YouTube, Johnny's showing us a photo of their brand new office in Edmonton with cold beer taps. I love they have a bonsai tree growing out of their boardroom table. Oh, they got cool this space. guy, too, hanging oh, out. Oh, man, they got the beautiful pup. It's a dog-friendly workspace, and they have ball hockey tournaments on Friday. I don't know when they get the work done. That's the, they've, they've, <laughs> They have mastered the work-life balance at Kubi Renewable Energy. 
I also want to give a shout out right now before we get to JC's email to our friends at Eden Landscaping. Literally, as we speak right now, they're working at our space and we're so excited about it. We've been talking to their team for months after we hired them and brought them on, started with planning. And now it's, well, it's going into the implementation phase. They're bringing our outdoor space to life and I couldn't be more excited. This is not our home that I'm showing you right now on landscapeedmonton.ca. This is a beautiful project they did in the Balmoral Heights neighborhood in Edmonton where West Coast meets modern. Uh, This was one of the homes that was included on a Greenland garden tour. So you can see the proof of what they do. It's an eye-catching design, including those dry creek beds. I love seeing more and more people doing that, implementing some of the native plants and grasses back into the design. Pergolas and water fountains, you name it, they do it all at Eden Landscaping. You can get your quote today by visiting landscapeedmonton.ca. So we get this uh, email from JC down in Calgary on Saturday. I love knowing that some people, you know, they won't hear an episode for, you know, two, three, five, ten days later, but then they're on a dog walk or they're on a bike ride, whatever they're doing. They hear an interview mm-hmm. and they just have to get in touch with us. And that's what JC did. He said, in response to your methane conversation uh, with Jeff Galis, he said a very under discussed technology that's currently showing great promise may offer the best solution to this problem. I just know that this email is going to prompt more emails. Uh, JC says, Bitcoin proof-of-work mining, due to its decentralized nature and location-agnostic quality, we're now able to plug into any type of energy source to mine Bitcoin. And this includes captured methane from landfills and emissions from flared gas. You know, this has obviously been one of the big criticisms around Bitcoin is is the energy draw on mining it, right? If you Google it, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. And so I think to, to maintain or at least to grow public trust, this is something that's had to be addressed. Uh, JC says these are just a few examples of an enormous supply of stranded or wasted energy all over the globe that can now contribute via mining to the security of this growing global network while monetizing the project in the process. He says it's a win for both the environment and the economy using apolitical technology. There needs to be a much bigger spotlight on the benefits of Bitcoin. That from JC down in Calgary. We appreciate you taking the time to send us your thoughts. You can reply to that if you like to talk at ryanjesperson.com. We always want to hear what you have to say. A ton of folks in the in the uh, live chat today chiming in. Hey, we've, we've, we've had some pretty wide-ranging conversations on the cannabis industry, on the oil and gas industry. As soon as, uh, as uh, Jeff earlier today uh, mentioned, microbrews or the beer industry we saw a whole bunch of people starting to talk about their favorite microbrews they saw that and uh and i think it would be wonderful if you could see i mean from from an employment standpoint from a government revenue standpoint from an economic standpoint in other words economic activity um you know b2b b2c um if that industry could thrive Mm -hmm. if if the sort of boutique cannabis industry could thrive and if it could get on a healthy track yeah um but with what we heard today it just it feels like it, it kind of maybe the common theme uh with both of our conversations today sure if you if you look um honestly and analytically and critically at those industries, you have to acknowledge that there's a lot of work still to be done, and mm-hmm. you wonder about the political appetite on both fronts to do that work. But our first guess was right. The cannabis industry, they're not like the 
I'm assuming the same people consume alcohol as well, but they they want the best stuff. They want the best grown. They want the quality ingredients. They want, uh, but they also want the convenience. Like my partner, for example, all about the boutiques. She always tries to go to the boutiques and and pay for the better stuff, the higher price stuff, the more quality stuff. But you know what? The the and I'll just throw out names. The value buds. All these all these uh, companies that are kind of popping up everywhere that have they have more selection and it's always there and they're beating out these boutique shops who are just trying to get by uh giving you better information and that's the other thing they're kind of handcuffed you can't really tell people about cannabis if you're not uh, like a medical doctor you can't say hey you should try this cbd gummy it might make your knee feel better or your back feel better so there's all this red tape and the one thing he said that was staggering to me is that we're producing way more cannabis than we need and destroying so, a lot of it so it's just being wasted yeah it's re- yeah it's crazy yeah i don't know if i agree with him on the marketing front about how he you know because and, and that's fine. We don't bring on guests just because we agree with them. But he says, well, he doesn't want to be watching hockey games with kids and see nothing but gambling and cannabis ads. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that that to me is is a subjective call. Yeah, I, um, I never I get. I don't know if I kind of, a, 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 you know, agree. No, I do know that I don't agree with the sort of the moralizing of that. Um, I don't think that it's any better that. You know, alcohol is advertised on mass absolutely everywhere. Yeah, I've never... been doing a lot of reading lately on on the culture around alcohol and how it's. You know, yeah. you talk to friends that that get sober that live that so called teetotal lifestyle, mm-hmm. and um, and it's a it's a really growing industry as well. The dealcoholized. I don't know what the actual yeah, straight phrase edge. they use, but straight edge yeah. cocktails and mm-hmm. and there is a, a really a growing business there. You look at some of the even the micro breweries or the craft brewers, mm-hmm. or a lot of them are introducing the the point five or the alcohol-free beers yeah. because there's a real demand for that stuff. My partner's the same way, always with the mocktails, and they're everywhere at all the chain restaurants now. But um, I, I never got on board with that when people were like, oh, I don't want to see gambling ads during hockey games. Well, you, you've been seeing beer ads your entire life, every yeah. other commercial. So I don't know. I'm not supporting it. I'm just saying I, I don't see the difference. Really. Yeah. Uh, Justin in the chat says, I, I love the legal stores and the better brands, the top shelf strains of yes. weed, but they do get ridiculously expensive, they says do. Justin. He says, but there's also some great stuff at reasonable prices. The overproduction of cannabis is a big problem. Mm-hmm. What I'd like to see is, is like, you know, you, you have a, uh, like a, a wide range of available product where someone can, I mean, look at it with wine. Mm-hmm. Like you can get an $8 bottle of wine if you want. Um, you know, if you're, if you're buying three cases for a wedding or something like that, or if you're on a budget or if quite frankly, you just don't care. Um, or maybe you're relatively inexperienced with wine and, and you don't know the difference between an $8 and an $80 bottle. And then, mm-hmm. then that's fine. There's a market for that. That's great. And then you can go spend three grand on a bottle of wine if you want and and put it in your cellar or crack it right away. There's mm-hmm. that option. Um, so I, I think that there's a, a market, obviously, for, for cannabis that's relatively cheap, you know, that, that works out to sure. whatever it is, you know, four bucks a gram or something like that, 90 bucks an ounce. But then you um, find something you like. You want to have good boutique grown craft 100%. cannabis that's hand trimmed that you see the benefit in that you consider yourself to be a bit of an aficionado yeah. um, and, and you have the budget for that then I think it's great that that's available uh, but if those craft growers can't survive if the landscape doesn't allow for it then it, it's not a good thing if only uh, and I'm, I'm trying to think of like beer brands I don't know if I want to start naming it but, <laughs> but like they can take it they're big guys they can take it but sure. like, if, if you're a beer drinker and there is only Labatt Blue, 
Coors Light, that's and, and Corona. If those are your only options, you're an underserved market. It's not good for the consumer if that's the only available product. So you find a boutique place you like, you like the service, you like the people, the prices don't bother you. But then the they're still handcuffed because they have to get in line with all the other stores to get their products. So like you're talking about beer and wine, they can have as much of every brand of alcohol in their store at once, but the, the cannabis just needs to figure it out. And then we're we're burning or I don't know what we do with all this excess cannabis, but we we can't supply I'm the stores with what they need. It just doesn't I'm make sense. I'm starting to think maybe we should start up a business where we'll help people get rid of the excess cannabis. <laughs> we promise we will burn it all. <laughs> No surprise that Bunny Slippers, which is one of my favorite handles in our live chat, Bunny Slippers comes up with this example. It says, so cannabis is like shoes. Uh, we have the stores that sell Prada and Chanel and Dior. And then we have the shoe warehouse for those sure. that are on a bit more of a budget. Yeah, sure. Yeah, there you go. There you go. I don't mind that example at all. Uh, we have a tough update to give you in just a second. Uh, first, I, I wanted to talk about the, the oil and gas industry, and, and obviously it's no secret that the oil sands operations here in Alberta contribute significant carbon emissions in Canada, and that's why the six largest companies are working together and with governments to take strides on the path to net zero from their operations. We talked about this with ministers Randy Boisneau and Stephen Gilboa last week. If you want to hear those interviews, they specifically reference Pathways Alliance. Part of their plan includes developing a proposed carbon capture and storage network by 2030. It's going to be one of the world's largest. You can learn more about how they will achieve their plan by visiting pathwaysalliance.ca. And we do have one other note about a Real Talk sponsor that's hiring. That's our friends at Apex Automation that are putting out a call to professional engineers across the country and beyond. As a matter of fact, they recently welcomed a team of experts that moved to Canada from China to join their team, experts in their field that wanted to be at the forefront of where automation is going. There's a ton of different options here. If you want to work in BC, Maybe you want to work in Alberta or Saskatchewan, maybe down in Texas. Apex Automation is looking for the best and brightest engineers, electricians, and instrumentation technicians as they continue to grow their business across a number of emerging spaces, robotics, autonomous vehicles. They're doing potash mining in Saskatchewan, natural gas processing. They're involved in so much. I mean, it'll blow your mind once you get a peek behind the scenes. And this is a really neat company to work for as well because they put so much value on their people. The minute you talk to their executive leadership team, like we did just a couple of weeks ago, I had a chance to go golfing with them and talk about where their business is going. You recognize how much they care about their team at Apex Automation. If you're feeling under-inspired, if you feel like your skills are underutilized, I want you to make sure that you take two seconds today and visit apexautomation.ca. You'll find details on job postings by following the careers link. Well, friends, I know that a lot of you have had your hearts in your throats for the past number of months as you've wondered about our dear friend, Sapria Devetti and her husband, Anoop. It was back in January that Sapria first let us know that Anoop had been diagnosed with cancer. The diagnosis was a devastating one. Stage four, 
And for the last number of months, he bravely fought, doing everything that he could to stick around for his family. Supriya talked to us uh, just heading into the spring about their family's battle and some of the challenges that they were encountering with the healthcare system. Supriya and I, our project, seriously, the podcast went on hiatus and she stepped away from most of her professional duties to be there for Anoop as best she could, along with their daughter, Sacha, just a, a beautiful and bright-eyed little girl. I'm devastated to let you know that earlier this week, Anoop passed away. And on behalf of all of us at Real Talk and the Relay family, we send our deepest condolences. I know that many of you have already been in touch with Supriya on Twitter. We've seen those messages. If you would like to pass along messages of support and sympathy, you can do so to our email inbox talk at ryanjesperson.com, and we will make sure that she sees them. We can't imagine the grief that Supriya and her family will be grappling with for, quite frankly, the rest of their lives. What we do know is that we grieve with them, with broken hearts, and we will always remember Anoop Singh. Thank you for your messages of support in advance. Thank you for the love that you show Supriya, and thank you for being a friend of this show. We'll talk to you tomorrow.